Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. We are almost to the end of spooky season. (laughs) I'm so sad. Me too. This has been a very welcomed break from some of those really tough cases. Like for me, the Sylvia case was very, very hard to research and talk about. So it's been fun covering some more, I guess you can't say lighthearted episodes, (laughs) but things that might be fact, might be fiction, a little bit of history and taking just a little break from all of this true crime content that we're constantly absorbing doing this podcast. But Halloween is just around the corner and we have some incredible episodes coming up on Halloween weekend for you guys. I'm not going to give anything away today, but please stay tuned next week for a very exciting announcement of what is to come for the Case of the Sunday Scaries podcast. Before we start this episode off, Annie mentioned a case in an earlier episode of a little unidentified boy that had been found in a suitcase. Unfortunately, this week, some of the questions around this case may have been answered. Yeah, we covered this case. I think it was in like one of our very first podcast episodes, but it happened on April 16th. Just a little background. A mushroom hunter had stumbled upon this hard blue shelled Las Vegas suitcase. And inside of that suitcase was the body of a little boy. At the time, law enforcement was unable to identify the little boy, and a small funeral was held back in June. And on a tombstone, it says, the little boy who only God knows, something like that. Super sad. But on October 14th, due to physical evidence, two suspects were identified and two felony arrest warrants were issued. One for Don Elaine Coleman of Shreveport, Louisiana, and one for Dewan Ludy Anderson of Atlanta, Georgia. Dewan is the mother of the child. The first felony is neglect of a dependent resulting in death, which is a level one. And the second felony is obstruction of justice, a level six felony. On October 19th, just a few days ago, Don Coleman was arrested in San Francisco. The mother, Dewan, is still at large and an arrest warrant for murder has been issued. Her last known whereabout was Echo Park in the area of Los Angeles. But since the investigation began, she has traveled to Houston, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, San Diego, and now San Francisco. Her whereabouts are completely unknown. The little boy finally has a name. His name is Cairo Omar Jordan. He was from Atlanta, Georgia. He was five at the time of death, and he would have turned six just two days ago on October 24th. The probable cause affidavit has some really interesting and disturbing information. First, it says that cell phones for both women were tracked to the area the little boy was found. That was the physical evidence they were talking about. And second, the documents go on to say that the mother of the little boy had been making social media posts on a fake account for months referring to her child as a demon. One Facebook post made whoa, by the mother. Whoa, I have to interrupt you. You know what this is immediately making me think of? The Vallow case. Absolutely. One Facebook post made by the mother on April 12th, just four days before the suitcase was found, said the following. Father Vincent Lambert, good day, sir. I need to speak with you urgently. I have survived the death attack from my five-year-old throughout the five years he has been alive. I have been able to weaken his powers through our blood. I have his real name, and he is 100 years old. Need assistance. End of the post. This was a public post that she made? She had a fake Facebook account that one of the investigators ended up finding. And for months, she had been using this account to post really bizarre, demonic things about her son. Um, The name was like Kyrie Kive. It was kind of hard for me to pronounce. But she had been kind of using it as an outlet. 
So there's all this evidence, and it's just talking about how her son's a demon. At one point, she said that children are avatars, and that's how they come to Earth. It's definitely giving me signs of mental health issues, which is really sad. But what she did is not sad. It's horrible. I think more is going to come out about this case, but I did not see. I knew it was going to be a bad ending, but this is even worse than I could have imagined. Because what's really sad is that the father of this child came on to his Facebook and made this long post saying that for months he had been trying to get a hold of the little boy's mother, had been trying to reconnect with Cairo, and it was completely unsuccessful. They knew that that little boy was probably in danger and kind of in trouble, but he was missing and they couldn't get a hold of the mother. So then whenever he got this call, I'm sure it was just a father's worst nightmare. He said that he had even seen on the news about the suitcase, but never once guessed it was Cairo because this was found in Pekin not Atlanta, Georgia. Pekin is in southern Indiana, this little remote town. Um, The suitcase was found on a dead end. Yeah, it was completely not what he was expecting, but it's just super sad. And now clearly this mom is on the run. Is there any information about the other suspect that they arrested? No, I don't know if she's speaking. I don't know if they're trying to make a plea deal. As of now, there's no other information other than just her name, um, what she's being charged with, and that she was arrested in California. While I'm very happy that he has a name, it is heartbreaking to think what that boy went through if his mom was making all these posts prior to, I mean, even his death. His death is very sad, but in life, I'm sure things weren't going very well in that household. So I guess we will find out more as more things come out. Hopefully we get that mom in custody. Like you said, definitely sounds like there was some mental health issues, but that's still no excuse for what happened to this poor boy. All right. Well, on a again, lighthearted is not the right word for this, but Annie, you were actually the inspiration for this mini sewed today. I am flattered. Wait, I'm actually nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, don't speak so soon. When you were covering your history of Halloween episode, and I saw that picture of you dressed as the invisible man, all <laughs> wrapped up in ace bandages for Halloween as a little girl, it made me think of one thing. Any guesses? Hmm. Horrible outfits that you should not dress your child as. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, I, if pictures from my childhood are any, any indication, I could do a whole separate episode on that. But mummies. Oh, I loved it. So Ooh, to- mummies. I'm Okay, I'm honored. I'm not nervous anymore. <laughs> okay, good. I have no plans on making you a mummy, so we're just going <laughs> to talk about them. Today, we are talking all about mummies, the curse around a certain Egyptian ruler's burial place, and how Europeans destroyed so many ancient Egyptian burial grounds in order to ingest mummies. Oh. That's right. I said ingest mummies. We're back to the don't eat after this episode. I didn't get a warning this time, Elise, and I'm hungry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, I had to. We're... We're back in ancient Egypt. When did we start in ancient Egypt? Why did I write that? (laughs) Let's try that again since I don't know when we started in ancient Egypt. Like we're going on a field trip to a place we've been before. And then I was like, wait, wait, when did we go back to Egypt? I was kind of like, totally. We definitely covered an episode in that, right? No, (laughs) we've only done like 24 episodes. (laughs) No, I look like Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Bus right now, but... I'm not taking us on a field trip. I don't know why I wrote that or said it. (laughs) All right. Let's just rewind that back. Let's pretend we are in ancient Egypt and someone has died. 
But if that someone was a laborer, a commoner, then they were most likely just buried in a sand pit. But it's also very similar to what we do today, right? They're just put six feet under. However, the incredible heat of the desert and sand would essentially absorb any moisture in the body and create a natural mummy without any need for humans to interfere whatsoever. But if they were a rich and powerful member of Egyptian society or a pharaoh, what about that? The Egyptians believed that after you die, your ka, or life force spirit, left your physical body. However, unlike most religions today who believe that your spirit wouldn't need any physical substances like food or things like that to continue on, the ka did need food, and offerings were often made to the deceased person's ka and put in their tomb. While the ka was not attached to the body after death, the ba, or personality, was. So they believed you had your physical presence, then you had your spirit, and then you had your personality. I like that thought. I do too, kind of, that they're all intertwined, but Mm -hmm. very separate as well. The Ba was still attached to the body, at least partially. It would return to the body every night to receive new life force. So if you wanted the Ka of your beloved Pharaoh to survive death, the body had to survive death. And the answer to that? Mummification. Once the revered member of Egyptian society took their last breath, it was time to start the mummification process, a process that could take 70 days. I had no idea. I didn't either. My face kind of was like, whoa, 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 70. I thought they just took everything out, wrapped you up, and called it a day, but Mm -hmm. apparently not. And according to a History on the Net article called Mummies in Ancient Egypt and the Process of Mummification, the process of mummification went something like this. First, the body was washed. Then a cut was made on the left side of the abdomen and the eternal organs which include the intestines, liver, lungs, and stomach, were removed. The heart, however, was believed by the ancient Egyptians to be the center of emotion and intelligence. That was left in the body for use in the next life. I really find this interesting because we say, like, I love you with my whole heart. But -hmm. when you really think about it, I think most people nowadays know that, like, your thoughts and feelings are in your brain, or at least that's what we believe it yeah. is. Yeah. But the Egyptians really believed that all of the emotion was stored in the heart, which is interesting. It is. Now, this one you may be able to relate to if you have ever had to do a nasal COVID test. The worst, <laughs> right? Yeah. Getting some, some bad throwback memories of that one. Like, oh. they, I know they touched my brain. They can say they didn't, but I know they did. Oh, it's awful. Well, a hooked instrument was used to remove the brain through the nose. And I think while our brain wasn't removed, like you said, we all thought for a good two years, every COVID test, that someone was trying to touch our brain with that swab. Funny enough, the brain, like I said, was not considered to be important at all. Egyptians believed it just produced mucus. And like I said before that, your emotions, feelings, and subconscious or spirit was in the heart. So they didn't feel the need for their pharaohs to get a little nasally with all that mucus production continuing after death. So the brain was just trash. Bye, brain. Don't need you. Don't care about you. Then the body and internal organs were packed with salt for 40 days to remove all moisture. That's why it takes so long because 40 of the days are just packing with salt. Are they doing any kind of rituals around the body at this point, or do they just pack them and kind of put them away for, well, for later use? Well, if you think use? of like modern day morticians, this is kind of where this stemmed from. In fact, we do a lot of the same practices today, just in a different way, and I'll get into that. But there was some religious ceremonies going on at this time and prayers, 
But it seems from what I read that every step was done with great intent for care, not only for the pharaoh or the person of you know nobility, but in also respect for what they were doing to that body to make sure that it had the best chance in the afterlife. So there was a lot of I don't really know how to phrase it. It was almost like there's a lot of respect and care and almost like a grief process by doing this. Like you're showing your reverence to that person through this process. I love that. Because the Egyptians believed that their pharaohs were God incarnate, they needed to make sure each of the organs was protected. So the stomach, lungs, liver, and intestines would be placed in four canoic jars, and I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Throughout this episode, I had a lot of highlighted words that I was trying to learn the pronunciation for, and I'm going to struggle. But (laughs) these jars were each made to represent one of the four sons of Hurus, or the head honcho male god. The body was then cleaned and the dried skin rubbed with oil, getting a little J-Lo body glow on, right? Then the body was packed with sawdust and rags, and the open cuts were sealed with wax. Not to be too morbid, but I have done makeup on people that have passed away. And this isn't very far off from what we do now. We don't use rags and sawdust, but if that person is an organ donor or an autopsy has been done, there is filling put in to make sure that that chest and stomach cavity is filled out. So I think we owe a lot of credit to these Egyptians for figuring this out first. I really hope that the Egyptians liked the pharaoh that they were putting this together. You know what I mean? Like, please do a good job. Because if they had this belief that I'm going to come back to this body if it's done right, you got to trust those people who are dealing with your body after you pass. I think there was probably enough fear in them where it didn't matter if they liked him or not. (laughs) Again, they believed that the pharaoh wasn't just the king. He was a god. So you don't really want a God's wrath coming down on you if you're doing a poor job. You know, go home, bitch about him to your wife, and then go continue (laughs) on, right? The body was then wrapped layer by layer in linen bandages and resin. About 20 layers were used, and this took anywhere from 15 to 20 days. So if you think of, I I mean, I'm painting my new house right now, so this is what I'm thinking of. It's almost like you do the first coat, then you got to wait. Got to set, make sure it's dry. Then you go back and do the second coat. That's why this process took so long, because there was 20 layers. Then a death mask was placed over the bandages. A death mask, by the way, for the people that don't know, is probably what you're envisioning when I talk about pharaohs. The gold elaborate head bust placed inside the sarcophagus. These were made so the Ba could recognize the body upon its nightly return. Very cool. So you don't want your personality going checking out another body. No. And rub it off on them, right? <laughs> you just keep that to yourself. Then the bandaged body was placed in a shroud or a large sheet of cloth, which was secured with linen, even more linen strips. Then the body was placed in a decorated mummy case or sarcophagus and put into a tomb. Now, if this was a pharaoh, these tombs got wilder and wilder as time went on because they are incredibly clever and have ways of concealing that mummy from potential grave robbers. I'm talking You guys, I'm not making this up. This sounds like some Indiana Jones stuff. But fake trap doors, long corridors that lead to nothing, booby traps. The Egyptians were a master craftsman, or at least the enslaved people they made build their tombs were. But perhaps that's a whole other episode because I have some questions when it comes to uh, the things that Egyptians were able to build that we can't figure out a way to build today. I'll just leave it at that. So now that we know the process of mummification, and frankly, I think despite any religious beliefs, there is something to be said about the prolonged honoring of the person that has passed that is really, really special. 
and something that unfortunately I don't think we're given the time in this modern day to do things like that for our uh, loved ones. So I think it's kind of a neat practice that they're showing care for the body long after death. Apparently, Europeans around the 16th century didn't think much of honoring or respecting the resting places of the dead because what did they do? Oh, you know, what we did before and what we have done numerous times throughout history, they decided to take what wasn't theirs for their own benefit. Does that sound familiar? Way too familiar, these greedy people. Well, us. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> these are probably our great, 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 great grandparents we're talking about oh, here. And yeah. shame Sadly. on you, <laughs> right. Grandma. Throughout history, there was a black tar-like substance called bitumen. 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 Shit. I had that one down. Throughout history, there was a black tar-like substance called, and before I say it, you guys, I know what this sounds like, but I looked up the pronunciation, and it is pronounced bitumen. <laughs> We're going to have the giggles. <laughs> so I'm going to try not to laugh, but if you've ever passed a road getting new asphalt, that viscous tar-like material is incredibly similar to what we're talking about now. And it was used for numerous things since it started out as a liquid and then hardened when it dried. Ancient cultures used it to create structures. In fact, um, in the Bible, they talk about it being used to create the Tower of Babylon. So it's been used for a while. They made casts for broken bones. They put it around their tree trunks to protect from insects and wildlife. And yes, at some point, it was believed to be a cure-all for different ailments when crushed into powder. Why? Um, no one is really quite sure. But later, in the 20th century, scientists did find that bitumen did contain sulfur and other antimicrobial properties. So they may have been right to a point, but how would they have known that? They didn't have the microscopes and stuff that we have now. But back then, who knows, maybe someone sitting in their apothecary mixing the tinctures of the time just was testing out different uses for things that they could easily get their hands on. And when bitumen seemed to work to cure topical ailments, they thought, hey, what's good for the outside must be good for the inside. Let's give it a little chug-a-lug and see what happens. PSA, don't do this with any products that you find under your kitchen counter, friends. Thank you. <laughs> This tar-like substance was found primarily in the Middle East and was made up of the remains of plant and life matter. The Persians had a different name for bitumen, thank goodness, because I can't keep saying that without giggling. They called it mum, which meant wax. When the first Egyptian mummies were found by European grave robbers, hey, I'm just calling it as I see it, and they saw a black sticky material on the mummies, they assumed it was bitumen or mum, and that is how we got the term mummy. Full circle. But what the heck does any of this have to do with a true crime podcast <laughs> or spooky season? Well, let's talk about corpse cannibalism. I wish you guys could see Annie's face. They're always wide during these episodes. <laughs> I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> Soon you will be able to. Hint, hint. Word got around in the 13th century when Europeans explored Egypt that this now overly used wonder drug was lining the bodies of Egypt's dead. And by the time this finding got back to Europe through a long game of telephone, it became a rumor that the entire mummy itself had healing powers. Quick little side note, most of the mummies, in fact, had a very different type of resin on them that had just blackened and hardened with age that probably had no medicinal benefits whatsoever because mum was not used in the embalmment process until about 1000 BC as an inexpensive substitute for the resin used for the pharaohs. So they saved the good stuff for the king, 
Everyone else got the mum. Anyways, European explorers and merchants started smuggling back Egyptian mummies, claiming they were pharaohs or rulers to fetch a higher price. But remember what I told you about common folks were normally the ones buried in pits? It's much more likely that these were not the preserved remains of the ruling Egyptian pharaohs at all, especially when you consider merchants like John Sanderson, who in 1586 smuggled 600 pounds of Egyptian human body parts back to Europe. That's a lot of body parts, and that would be a heck of a lot of pharaohs to happen across, especially considering the extensive protection measures I told you guys about earlier taken to protect the tombs of the nobles. So like John, we're on to you. Simmer down, John. You're not that special. You're full of shit. You're full of mum. Well, some people rejected this idea, and for good reason. There certainly was a lot more people dying, pun intended, to get their hands on this mummy medicine and ingest it. We all understand supply and demand, and these Europeans were using mummy medicine for all sorts of ailments. Acne, fertility issues, headaches. This image went into my mind when I was researching this of if you've ever watched the my big fat Greek wedding movie. I'm obsessed with that movie. I just watched it on Saturday because we went to a Greek wedding. I'm not even kidding you. (laughs) Did you really? I love that movie. Yes, I love it. Well, you know how the father's constantly spraying Windex on everything? Yes. Think of mom as the Windex of the day. So it's like, oh, you got acne? Here you go. Here's your spot treatment. Some little crushed up mummy bits for you. Oh, you, you have digestion issues? Well, just mix up these little mummy body parts in some water. Call me in the morning. It was literally used for a cure-all for everything. But it was also thought that consuming the dead flesh of another would also be some sort of fountain of youth and knowledge. I think everyone, and maybe why we're so interested in Egyptian culture and in their pyramids and everything that goes along with this is because they seem so incredibly advanced. They do. I agree. And so smart. Yeah. And even now, like we're just now understanding a lot of things about why the pyramids were structured in a certain way. And like I said before, building like booby traps and stuff thousands and thousands of years ago. It's just wild, their craftsmanship and their knowledge. And I think that that was well talked about even back then. So people wanted a little touch of whatever made the Egyptians so smart. Leonardo da Vinci, which, you know, I'm pretty sure you all have heard of was even quoted saying, we preserve our life with the death of others. In a dead thing, life remains, which when it's reunited with the stomach of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. And maybe it was true because Leonardo was an artistic genius. There's no doubt about that. And maybe he owed his talents to the incredible art and knowledge of the Egyptians that he was ingesting. Oh, so he was one of the ingesters. Oh, he likes the mummy. Mm. I wonder what it tasted like. Probably just powder. Yeah. Not baking soda. I'm thinking like putting flour in your mouth. I don't know. I just do my best not to eat dead people. (laughs) (laughs) It's not really part of my current diet. I'll be sharing on Instagram my diet tips for (laughs) mummies later. No, (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) No mummy eaters here. Well, when more modern approaches to medicine became available, eating mummies sort of died out. Plus, at this point, they are running out of mummies, literally. 
But the curiosity around mummies remained, which led some rich Europeans to host parties in their homes when they could get their hands on a mummy, that is, and these parties were called unwrapping parties. So I don't know about you, but around Christmas time, like my brother and my sisters and my mom and dad, like we would have gift wrapping mm-hmm. little things. I know my mom probably had a glass of wine. We probably had like hot apple cider if I remember correctly. And we sat around wrapping Christmas gifts. Well, these aristocrats of the time would literally go over for a dinner party and like the ta-da moment was unwrapping a dead body. So what's worse, this or the human candle from your other episode? Human candle, because those are alive. (laughs) Like the mummy has no say in it or does it? We'll talk about that later in the episode, just a little prequel. But there's part of me that, I hate to say this, I get it to a certain degree. Not the ingesting. Nope, that's not my cup of tea. Never will be. Never has been. But if there was a King Tut uh, traveling museum tour, whatever they call it, what's the word I'm looking for? Exhibition. Exhibition. I would go. I would absolutely go. There's a really great pharaoh exhibition at the Denver. Exhibit is a word we're looking for. Exhibit. Wow, we're bad with words today. (laughs) There's a really great exhibit, though, of ancient Egypt at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. I think that's what it's called. It is so good. You would probably love that, at least. We had to do a field trip. All right. Well, Miss Frizzle will take us on a field trip. (laughs) (laughs) I would go see something like that. And Perhaps there's going to be a mummy that's part of it, which, yes, is a dead body, but I would still be fascinated. But what these people seem to forget is that their lives were not any more important than these people who had lived before them. And while perhaps scientists and historians could make an argument for unwrapping and learning about mummies, I just cannot see anything but blatant disrespect for the dead if you're using someone's actual physical body as a parlor trick, the end of a dinner party being like, ta-da, now we're going to unwrap this mummy. That's someone's dad or child. Right. They wouldn't be digging up coffins around this time and looking through their neighbors, you know, dead relatives. So it is disrespectful. I totally agree. Funny you say that, Annie. Are they doing this as well? <laughs> sort of. Um, I wasn't going to talk about this, but you just kind of led me in. So we're going to sidetrack for just a minute. <laughs> yeah. When I was doing research for this, I was thinking like, well, how many mummies can they possibly get to Europe? Apparently they had the same question because then they stopped using mummies as they were harder and harder to get, which is why only the aristocrats were doing these parties. But when it was still being used for medicine, they just started getting prisoners or people that had died a violent death and doing the exact same thing because at this point they stopped believing it was the mum carrying them, but it was human flesh. So they would just incinerate bodies of people that had died, prisoners, children, did not matter, and were using that as, again, a cure-all. So Let's not give them too much of the benefit of the doubt because it wasn't just these thousand-year-old mummies they were going after. It could be Timothy that died like three days ago. Nobody was safe. Nope. Not unless you came from a family that had the means to protect you and bury you in a certain way. Maybe we'll cover that in a different episode, but mm-hmm. you brought it up. So I had to, had to say that that was a very disgusting little side note that I had. I think the spirits of these mummies must agree with me that this is a pretty disrespectful practice because next we need to talk about the Pharaoh's curse. In November of 1922, Howard Carter and a team of researchers unearthed a step that was leading to the tomb of what they would later find out was King Tut. 
When the tomb itself was unearthed later that month on the 26th, it was believed by many that the pharaoh, who had been undisturbed up until this point for over 3,000 years, unleashed a curse on all that disturbed his peace. And after doing a little research, hell, I think it might be true. So let's go through some of these cursed individuals. George Herbert, the Earl of Carnarvon, had financed this expedition into King Tut's tomb and would be the first person afflicted by its curse. He was giving himself a shave, you know, maybe getting ready for date night, and he just happened to nick a mosquito bite. A little whoopsie-doopsie and a bit of tissue, and he would normally be on with his day, right? But instead, he ended up dying of blood poisoning from that small little cut into a mosquito bite just days later. That's bizarre. What's even more bizarre, Annie, is there is rumors that the night he died, all the lights mysteriously went out in his home around his time of death. Creepy. Yeah, yeah, that is. That's not a coincidence either, I don't think. I mean, Well, and why this all sounds kind of like maybe that's like a fun little rumor to add to the mystery. Remember, this guy's an earl, so I'm sure there was lots of people working in this home, chefs, housemaids, all of that. I should know this, but what is an earl? Duke, 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 Duke of Earl. Got it. (laughs) Okay. okay. (laughs) It's a song from the 50s. No, an earl is, um, you know, a person with a title. (laughs) So someone who's higher up in society, not your average Joe. This was Bridgerton. He would be invited to the ball. Oh, I love that visual. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about now. Then there's Howard Carter, the one who led this expedition. He decided to send his buddy Bruce Ingham a little gift, a paperweight as he referred to it. Except this paperweight was a mummified hand. While Ingham did not die from the curse, shortly after receiving this paperweight, his house burned down. But, you know, life goes on. He rebuilt. And as soon as the house was finished, it was hit with a flood. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot to happen to (laughs) one house. Yeah. And I can only wonder if after that he just, like, got rid of this hand. And if so, um, Mr. Ingham, we'd like to know where it's at now. So was this King Tut's hand? No one has a sure answer on whose hand this belonged to. But most people guess that it was one of the tomb builder's hand. Because generally the people that built the tombs were buried in the area surrounding it when they passed. Kind of as a respect to them for all their hard work. George J. Gold, a wealthy American who was curious about the tomb, booked himself a little voyage in 1923 over to Egypt to check it out in person. He mysteriously got sick immediately after exiting the tomb and died just a few months later of pneumonia. I'm believing this curse as well. I don't know what I think. We'll, we'll talk about it at the end, but there is more. Now, Hugh Evelyn White, an archaeologist, was believed to help excavate the site of King Tut's tomb, but at the very, very least, he visited it. By 1924, when many of his fellow excavators had died, he unfortunately chose to commit suicide. But his suicide note said this, quote, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear, end quote. Now, is the curse he's talking about depression, maybe from the loss of his comrades, or is he referring to the curse of the pharaohs? Obviously, we will never know, but that's a pretty poignant letter to leave behind. And a strong word, curse. Yeah, I wouldn't use curse to describe an ailment, but then again, I'm not living in the 1920s. They probably had much better English than I did. Now, this one is just 
chock full of wild happenings is incredibly sad, but please take note of his name. Aaron Ember, as in a fire ember, a renowned Egyptologist and head of the Egyptology department, say that 10 times fast, at a little school called John Hopkins University, was friends with the people who opened King Tut's tomb. His house went up in flames in 1926, just an hour after his dinner party for these friends ended. His wife and son were sadly killed in the flames along with their housekeeper. But Aaron Ember, again, Ember, and it's a fire, I mean, that's weird, made it to the roof and was taken to the hospital. He told police that they could have gotten out in time, but his wife went to fetch their son, who was sickly, and instructed him to retrieve the manuscript for the book he had been working on, so they were separated in the home. Aaron died the very next day from the extreme burns to his body. The title of the book he was working on? The Egyptian Book of the Dead. Yeah, King Tut has a weird sense of humor with that one. That one kind of just gave me chills. Like, he wasn't even there, but he hosted a dinner party for these people. Suspicious. Richard Bethel, the secretary for that Earl we talked about earlier, Duke, Duke, Duke of Earl. I'm not going to butcher his last name, so we're just going to call him Earl, was the first person behind Howard Carter to enter into the tomb. He was found smothered to death in 1929 in a hotel room. No one was ever arrested for this murder, but what makes it even more bizarre is that his home, where he stored artifacts from the tomb, caught on fire numerous times. A radiologist named Sir Archibald Douglas Reed x-rayed King Tut before he went to the museum. He became sick the very next day and died just three days later. So, like, King Tut doesn't want you looking at his bones. That's uh-uh. for sure. He doesn't want anyone to know about his belly button ring. <laughs> His nose <laughs> ring, his He's tattoo like, on his left ankle. When, when does a tattoo show up in an X-ray? Oh, true, true. <laughs> that, that was the, that's, a, that's a bone tattoo, at least. Come on. Oh, yeah. Well, hey, it could be a thing. We don't know. Another of Carter's team didn't get hurt himself but was emotionally scarred when he returned home shortly after. And actually, I'm going to pause here, Annie. Why I'm telling you this I want you to bring up a picture of King Tut's death mask on your computer. Hold, please. And of course, for those listening, we will put this on the Instagram as well. King Tut death, death mask. mask. Okay. Gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So like I said, another of Carter's team didn't get hurt himself, but was emotionally scarred when he returned home shortly after unearthing and entering King Tut's tomb to find his pet canary had been eaten and in its place was a cobra oh, just chilling out in the birdcage, probably feathers just hanging around outside of it. But I wanted you to pull up a picture of his death mask. And what do you notice is on his head? Almost like a crown right there in the center. A cobra. Wow, that's gorgeous too. It has like a blue head. It looks very vicious though, I will say. Even though it's a mask, the cobra head looks evil. Well, get this. The cobra represented the monarchy of Egypt back in ancient Egypt, and many pharaohs wore it, including King Tut, like Annie just pointed out, as an emblem on their crown as a sign of protection for the monarchy. And then you're telling me that a cobra just happens to slither into this man's home, climb up whatever his birdcage is hanging off of, and kill the bird that's in the birdcage instead of just killing the bajillion birds outside? I'm telling you, weird sense of humor. 
Also, King Tut was cute. <laughs> like, like his mask. I'm like, damn. Okay. Uh, Annie loves a guy in eyeliner, apparently. <laughs> There's an emo night coming up. I'll take you, Annie. <laughs> Feast your eyes out. <laughs> well, as for Carter himself, the curse seemed to pass him by. But his tombstone reads, and I find this quite ironic, May your spirit live. May you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face towards the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. I find this kind of ironic because his burial place was supposed to be undisturbed for millions of years, but the same respect wasn't given by him to others. Interesting tombstone inscription there, buddy. Now, I just had to ask because I've I've talked about this a couple times through the episode. What are your thoughts about mummies? Because I kind of go either way. Should we be really excavating these tombs or future tombs that we might find around the world? Is it science and knowledge worth disturbing the dead? No, I don't think it's our business. I think also anytime you're talking about someone's religion and culture, you have to be respectful. And I feel like they're not being respectful. I say leave it be. What do you think? I don't know because there's part of me like getting a body involved even in this day and age is a huge part of not necessarily our culture but like a part of our death practices a huge Mm -hmm. part unless you're getting cremated or something like that and we learned a lot of these techniques from the Egyptians so there's stuff that we certainly have learned but maybe we don't need to to remove the body take pictures of the tomb. I can support that. Isn't there stuff that we can just learn from the area around it or from pests done to carbon, whatever it is that they used, carbon dating to figure out what old these bodies were by just taking like a piece of the shroud or cloth. I don't know. I go back and forth because we obviously learn a lot and we wouldn't know about ancient Egypt as much as we do today if these tombs hadn't been explored. Valid point. But at what cost? I don't want to be cursed. Oh, heck no. No. (laughs) I would love to go to Egypt, see the pyramids and stuff like that. I think it would be unbelievable. But I don't don't know. You guys let us know what you think because I am obviously a big proponent of respect the dead, leave them where they are. But then there's the science part of me that Mm -hmm. goes, how much do we learn and advance from learning about past cultures? I don't know, but I wonder if this team certainly regretted their decision, I would think. Oh, yeah. Of going into King Tut's tomb. Studies showed, and I thought this was kind of funny because I found this on a website where it was real skeptics because I want to hear both sides of King Tut's you know, tomb and the Pharaoh's curse. Well, a study showed, and they use this to prove their point, that of the 58 people who were present when the tomb and sarcophagus were opened, only eight died within a dozen years. That's a high percentage, I feel like. <laughs> um, if they said eight people died within 20 years even, I'd be like, okay. But we're looking like 10 to 12 years, eight people out of 58 died. I wouldn't chance it. To me, these skeptics just kind of prove the point. That is a lot of people. And, and none died, of them died in like a car accident. Right. They died pretty horrible deaths and pretty odd ones too. Like the blood poisoning from nicking a mosquito bite. Yeah. I have so many mosquito bites in this summer. Could you imagine shaving your legs and thinking like, oh, this could kill me? Mm-mm. Never. We have talked about corpse cannibalism and curses, but I want to end this mummy sode. See what I did there? So clever. Love. <laughs> <laughs> With a tale of another pharaoh's curse 
that kind of has a sweet ending. According to a Mental Floss article by Stacy Conrad, when he was a young archaeologist, Zahi Hawass, again, pronunciation, I'm doing my best, he would later become the inspector of antiquities for many archaeological expeditions, but when he was starting out in his career, he was excavating a tomb and transporting artifacts from the site. The very same day that he removed these artifacts, his cousin died. But then, exactly a year to the date, his uncle died. On the same date, different years, On but the, the same, same date. day. That is really odd. I mean, there's coincidences, but that... Mm-mm. That's is, not one of them. No. But apparently this was not enough to deter him, and he continued on with his excavations. Bro, take a hint. <laughs> you would think, right? When he was working on the tombs of the builders of the Giza pyramids, he came upon a curse that read, quote, All people who enter the tomb, who will make evil against this tomb and destroy it. May the crocodile be against them in the water. And the snack, I said snack. I was like snacking. <laughs> You you come in this tomb, you can eat no snacks. (laughs) All the snacks will go right to your hips, right to your butt, and none of it will go to your boobs. And that's the worst curse of all. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) What I meant to say was snake. (laughs) Okay. Snake, snack, potato, potato. Oh, I was really trying to do it in that cursy voice, too. I know. I was was getting built up. I was like, oh. And then you're like, snack. And I'm like, you lost me, Elise. I'm not scared anymore. I'm just hungry. Let's rewind yet again. (laughs) All people who enter this tomb destroy it. May the crocodile be against them in the water and the snake against them on land. May the hippopotamus be against them in water and the scorpion on land. The odds are not in your favor. While he said he was never superstitious, he must have agreed because he hightailed it out of there and let those mummies be. Just in case. His whole one side of his family is gone. I don't think he wanted to chance the other side. So he'd let the mummies be. This is what I think is kind of sweet, these next two stories, or creepy, depending on how you interpret them. He was involved in removing two mummies of children and transporting them to a museum. He said the children would haunt him every single night and that it only stopped when the mummy of their father was reunited with his children in the museum. I don't want creepy kids haunting me. But I like to think, like, they got their dad, their protector back. Absolutely. The family's back together. Yeah. All those poor babies. And to die that young. I mean, I want to know their story now. You know, obviously they were royalty, right? Royalty or or had some higher higher up privileges or money. Also recorded an incident where a sickly young boy who was fascinated and loved everything about ancient Egypt was miraculously healed when he came on the mummy of King Amros. He looked into his eyes, and suddenly, he wasn't sick. Now, I don't know if those two stories are true. There's obviously no way to fact-check them. But I like to think that, like I said, the two children found peace again when their father was reunited, the family was back together. And especially because they believed that your spirit, your personality came back in the afterlife to that body. It would make sense that, like, at night they'd be like, like, where's our dad? Absolutely. But that's it for me. Annie is coming back Sunday for a very special Halloween episode where she is not only covering a very scary haunting, but we will be announcing finally what is next for Kinsley Scary's podcast. I (laughs) hope you will join us at the end of our spooky season coverage. But as always, until then.